Hello, and welcome to another episode of Broadening the Narrative, where I talk to people who are broadening the narrative I was taught. Today's music is Broken Record, featuring Lucy by Micah Bournet and Jasmine Rodriguez. If you haven't already, please rate and review to help others find the show. You can find Broadening the Narrative on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I would love to connect with you on social media. I'm your host, Nikki Pappas. If I'm not chasing my kids around, you'll likely find me reading a book. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm so glad you're here. This movement is controlled only by one side, and it is not global missions. It's just Western missions. You know, it can't be global unless everybody's at the table discussing this together. On today's episode of Broadening the Narrative, I am joined by Mekdes Hadis. Mekdes is an African missiologist. She's also the founder and executive coach at Just Missions, and she has a forthcoming book with InterVarsity Press, which we will talk about in our conversation as I ask Mekdes all the questions about reframing missions. I was introduced to the work that Mekdes is doing through my friend, Ruth Fugino. So whenever you listen to this, thank you, Ruth. And thank you, Mekdes, for coming on to the show. I've been looking forward to our conversation since we exchanged emails a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yes. Well, to start us off, can you share about yourself and your background? Yeah, so I am originally from Ethiopia, born and raised, and I moved to the States at 19 um, because my parents thought that was the best thing for me in terms of furthering my education. And so that was the thing to do at the time. You know, if you you have family that has the means to send you um, around the world for education, it's considered a privilege. So I had that opportunity and came to the States. Um, And I actually, I, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, so I wanted I knew early on the Lord was calling me to full-time ministry, so I ended up at a Christian college, um, even though it was not a concept in my culture to kind of do vocational ministry and go to school for it. That was kind of my first adventure with the Lord because I knew he was calling me to that. So after college, um, I joined a church staff in the Claim Bible Church in the D.C. area um, as an intern first and went through this one-year rigorous discipleship program, you know, going through theology, like systematic theology, and all the great stuff about, uh, you know, doing hands-on ministry work, and got to be mentored by amazing people, and then I served on their staff for about four years after, um, and then we transitioned, um, so I did women's discipleship when I was there, Um, and then we, my husband and I moved to Dayton, Ohio for a little bit, um, where I worked with a church, another mega church in the area as a discipleship director. And basically my role was to uh, help transition the church from your uh, kind of old traditional Sunday school uh, strategy to small group, um, you know, model. And so I redesigned kind of the structure of their ministry and helped with uh, raising up leaders, you know, training, um, recruiting, all of that. And then we ended up uh, moving to the Charlotte area, actually, yeah. 2016. So that's where I am right now. I worked for a local church here, another mega church, 
happens to be <laughs> that I just end up in a mega churches. <laughs> but I was at a local church for about four years, um, served in different discipleship and outreach capacities, um, where my latest role was basically helping um, our church launch a new campus at a very diverse um, community. So I did cultural competency trainings and just kind of did uh, some listening projects where we understood the makeup of the community and listened to the needs so that we could best meet them to the best of our ability. So uh, I transitioned out of that role this past November to start Just Missions. Um, so that's where I am right now. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. And it sounds like yeah. for the first 19 years of your life in Ethiopia and then to the States and all these different yeah. capacities where you served have really probably helped give you the knowledge and experience to do what you're doing now. And just all yeah. the expertise you bring to that is really incredible. Um, so I do want to talk about growing up in Ethiopia for you. Sure. Did you have interactions with Western missionaries? That was something I was wondering about. And if so, mm-hmm. what those experiences were like for you? Yeah. So I think Honestly, growing up in any developing country, you have, whether directly or indirectly, you have interactions with missionaries. Mine happened to be indirect because of just the social status of my family. Um, I come from an upper middle uh, class family and so went to a private school, but that private school happened to be a Catholic missionary school, basically. Um, And it was an all-girls school. And my husband actually went to a Catholic all-boys school. And so, you know, we have those types of interactions indirectly, which also is interesting because, honestly, my academia from back home, too, like my training in academics was influenced by Western um, philosophy and ideology. So, From the beginning, I feel like I was groomed to kind of be this global leader. That's kind of how um, my family at least saw it. Because, you know, when you're living in it in the developing world, uh, it's kind of like, okay, you know, we need to go and make a difference. And so, so I had that indirect interaction. But, um, but also growing up in an evangelical, so my mom is an evangelical believer and then Ethiopian evangelical, you know, believer. My dad is Ethiopian Orthodox believer. My mom converted to evangelicalism later on in life. So I was about four when that happened. Um, and so I would say I was also impacted in that because I grew up in a household where Um, her faith was seen as a white man's religion um, because Ethiopia is one of the ancient Christian countries and the West, the Western mission movement did impact some of, it kind of disrupted the faith community because um, it it is still seen as this important faith. Um, And so, you know, but she, um, I mean, she, model Christ in such incredible way that I decided to, you know, follow her path and, um, you know, trust in the Lord. And from that perspective, but I will say Western evangelicalism is very different from, you know, the global evangelicalism that I am coming from, like the perspective I'm coming from. So that would be my interaction when I was back home with missionaries. It's more indirect than direct. 
Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a good piece of information to, to know there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you, you were getting into this. I would love if you could talk about the narrative about missions taught within Western missions specifically and like how that impacts, um, yeah. as you were saying, like other nations. Yeah. And so, you know, for me and Again, I'm only speaking from an Ethiopian perspective, but I'm also part of the diaspora community here in the States. And so, um, uh, especially for the African continent, that it's a mix. Um, first of all, you know, the Western um, missions cannot be separated from colonialism because that the two are just married and there's just no avoiding that so there's that uh just terrible uh path that um christians try to downplay because they're like well but you 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 know we brought the gospel to you i mean i've had someone actually say that Mm -hmm. to me you know and try to excuse the injustice you know the death the colonization all of that um and so that's like a huge backdrop that we can't avoid. Um, so we have that, but in terms of modern missions and missiology, I would say prosperity gospel is probably the best way I can describe it because it's associated with aid, you know, with money, with provision. Um, and so one of the things that actually really was disconcerting to me when, you know, I started growing in my discipleship journey in terms of equipping other believers, you know, to be disciple makers was this um, kind of separation between discipleship and mission. It was almost Mm -hmm. like as a disciple, you're here locally in your country leading Bible study. And then as a missionary, you're going somewhere else, save somebody from poverty, you know, and Mm -hmm. both of them were kind of messed up to me, you know, like the two for me have always been taught together as a disciple your job is to bring restorative justice as you share the gospel wherever you go um it it was not about an expedition you know to a different country it was about what you were doing today uh, that brought you know god's will to earth as it was in heaven as a believer that's my responsibility but the way the Western theology is shaped around or missiology is shaped is that you are needed somewhere else in the world to save the poor babies and then at home just lead a Bible study. Um, and that's just that that's just wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Oh, and I just I love the on earth as it is in heaven piece of all of it and how mm-hmm. I've come to just this new understanding of that, that has disrupted that narrative I had bought into and perpetuated. Yeah. Yeah, um, Well, so within this narrative, within Western missions, I was curious, did you ever believe that narrative uh, with your exposure to within the Catholic girls school and things like that? Or Mm -hmm. did you always see the flaws in it? You know, it's interesting um, being white supremacy is always not something that hits you in the face it's uh, it's very pervasive and when I say white supremacy I mean the idea that western ideologies and ways and philosophies and you know academia is superior right so um it was 
it seeped into everything I did. And I did idolize, you know, Western ways to the point that I left my home to come to America, you know, to pursue my education here and kind of see what the Lord would have for me. So I think um, this idea of, as a believer, my greatest calling is to go around the world and preach the gospel was something that I held on to as like my greatest call. And I think at the root of it, that is what Western missiology does is it tells you that you're, you, you as a believer, your greatest call is to go share the gospel with like this in this remote part of the world. Mm-hmm. For me, because there, there are like, you know, communities um, and villages that I visited and this idea of remote part of the world doesn't really make sense because, mm-hmm. you know, I come from a developing world and that's a stereotype to me um the other end of it as a believer when I contextualized my journey with Jesus was to go to you know America and share the gospel with Americans and that's kind of part of what brought me here and brought me into ministry in this context um and so I would say definitely I was impacted by it um but I think I hit a wall when I realized that First of all, coming in America to America as a black woman was um, that was not, you know, the most welcomed uh, um, way, not only a black woman, but as an immigrant, I was like, in terms of the social hierarchy, I was at the bottom. And for someone who has lived as, you know, um, as the majority in her culture and who's had her voice be valued and reflected in everything that I looked at, it was kind of like, what? And then to get that pushback from the faith community who I, you know, the way we are taught about global missions is like the whole world, the church is our home and we're going to embrace each other and love each other. And I was actually like an outcast. And so that kind of hit, you know, um, I kind of hit a wall there and then I went to Ethiopia on a mission trip with um, some people that I was translating for and just that was I think the breaking point for me where I I realized the way I'm looking at this is wrong because the stuff they're doing is not even addressing it's not even addressing the surface level let alone the deeper need of sharing the gospel with people so I definitely had an awakening in this journey as I have been decolonizing. I mean, honestly, I think the Lord decolonized my faith and my missiology for me. I was just following him. I was just praying and asking him. And as the, you know, these ideas start coming off because of the hurt inflicted, because of the questions I had to ask, I realized, oh, this is not the gospel. You know, this is actually a perspective. It's not the perspective, mm-hmm. you know, that I need to look at things um, through. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that journey there. And yeah. I'm so sorry for the encounters that you had, like coming to mm-hmm. the States. Thank but you. yeah, so, so then you mentioned you accompanied a group back overseas, Mm -hmm. back to Ethiopia, and you were translating. And so that kind of gets into some of more of what I want to talk about, which are the negative impacts. 
globally Mm -hmm. of short and long-term missions, like what Mm -hmm. you've seen in the work that you've done? Yeah, I think, you know, I think for any of us that are drawn to mission work, it is because we see the value in, you know, what we could do for the community that we're going to serve, right? So there's this approach of, oh, I'm going to go serve, do whatever it takes so that the outcome is good for them. What it ends up happening is it ends up serving the goer rather than the receiver. And so, and I will say in these several years of, of, you know, working in majority white churches, a lot of the programming that we tailored was to like pull people in and connect them. Um, It never really goes to a point of asking people to abandon everything and count the cost and, you know, just kind of, uh, you might end up dead. You know, we don't do that, but it's all over the Bible where people who follow Jesus, their future was unpredictable. Um, but these, like these mission trips, I mean, short-term mission trips, I'm just like, is a no-no uh, because they just end up hurting, creating this disruptive um, just behavior in the communities, undermining local leaders. Uh, dis- disrupting the economy is just a bunch of, you know, problems that it brings. Um, and then I think for the goer, though, it brings a lot of privilege. Like, like I think, mm-hmm. if anything, one thing you can see is it's kind of seen as this um, uh, medicine for people who are having a hard time being thankful for the life they have here oh, send them on a mission trip, let them see the problems of the world, and then that will cure them, you know, they'll be back here thankful for what they have, and so I've seen, unfortunately, I've seen people say terrible things about my people, um, you know, minimize the leadership of locals, or um, at, at times, just kind of prioritize the mission of their church, or the number that they need to bill or the agenda that they have at the cost of others. Um, One thing I would say is image is something that's huge for me. Um, So like pictures that are used to, you know, emotionally motivate Mm -hmm. people to give or to go. Um, So I feel like there are several unethical practices that are not confronted uh, because the locals are not given a voice again. Mm -hmm. And so it's this, 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 this movement is controlled only by one side and it is not global Mm -hmm. missions. It's just Western missions. You know, it can't Mm -hmm. be global unless everybody's at the table discussing this together. Um, So yeah, that's how I would answer that question. (laughs) I'm trying to remember, I should have uh, double checked this, but the call yeah. you had last week maybe with Sharon was that uh-huh. yeah um, Sharon, yeah. I, yeah so I watched that and so when you were saying the locals aren't um you know it's like they have a voice you're just uh yeah. it's being silenced and I thought that was exactly. such a key mm. piece within this whole conversation mm-hmm. um so with, with kind of all that as the backdrop, now with the work you're doing, what is the narrative you teach about missions and how, yeah, how did you come to your understanding within that? Yeah, I, I, okay. So I think the biggest thing I would say is what I've noticed about um, Western missions is, 
like I said, this discipleship and mission are divorced, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of like, um, you know, if you have money, if you have a call and you can afford mm -hmm. to go live abroad, you can do it. And it's such a privileged Western concept. I wouldn't be able to do that as a, an African, you know, or like somebody that's a local leader would not be able to say, oh, I'm called to an American, you know, church mm -hmm. as a senior pastor. No, because financially or, you know, social structure does not allow people to do that. So, um, but so I think for me, I understand it as American, specifically American culture um, is shaped by the theology of um, um, discovery. And so, which, um, which is basically saying, oh, I'm gonna go, um, you know, into the world and uh, make these people that are savages civil mm -hmm. and teach them my way and then teach them about my God as if they didn't know God before. And what that does is it takes away from even what, you know, what scripture says as, um, you know, he has revealed himself in all creation, right? Yeah. Nobody is without, um, without um, evidence that, you yeah. know, all of us know our creator. So there is this assumption that I challenge that who are you to introduce me to my creator, right? Mm -hmm. And so that by itself is a, like a false narrative. And then um, on top of that, so what supports that narrative of like going and discovering an expedition is we support it by Matthew 28, 18, 20, which is like the verse for missions. And that's Jesus came and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always till the end of the age. So they're like, hooray, let's go and make everybody. And people use terms like, let's go and plant the flag of Jesus Christ, you know, all over the world, which is so colonial, you know, mm -hmm. and so Western, where I started understanding um, the true pathway for missions was actually in Acts 1-8 when Jesus gives them the strategy. So yes, there is a command that says go into the world. But when you get, you know, a mission statement, there's always like a five-year plan where you can outline and say, oh, this is how you get from A to B. Westerners get to be because they have money, they have white privilege, mm -hmm. all of that stuff. The rest of the world can't do that. Mm -hmm. So I believe this is the biblical way because it is equally available to all of us. And so it says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so there are steps for a believer that that need to be taken before you end up in the end of the world mm -hmm. you have to first be filled with the holy spirit and i will say western theology heavily avoids the holy spirit like so we gotta start even there where are you with the holy spirit if you talk to any global leader christian global leader pastor you'll be amazed by how how much reverence there is 
for the Holy Spirit because there's this understanding without him, there's nothing that they can do. Mm-hmm. I feel like Western theology has replaced that with money. You know, you got to have money and then you keep doing, that's how you buy your way into power. And so um, there's the Holy Spirit. Then he says, then you'll be my witness in Jerusalem today. And so even with that, you start with your neighborhood. The, the, you know, the disciples didn't go to the end of the earth until persecution came. Mm-hmm. And persecution yeah. came because their witness was so offensive. The gospel was so offensive for the people around them. So they literally said, we're going to stand for justice. I mean, if you read through Acts, I would recommend your listeners to actually listen through Acts, like just one, you know, a whole, just like take a walk for an hour and listen through the whole book. It just mm-hmm. gives you a whole perspective for what missions looks like, the cost that you have to pay as a believer, as a follower of Christ, and the sacrifice you have to pay as a witness, because being a witness to him means that you can't hide. You're not somebody mm-hmm. that's like low key, you know, you are literally a, a light, like a city on a hill is what our calling is. But when you're a city on a hill, you also attract persecution. And so what drove them out of Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria is not calling, it's persecution, you know? And so I feel like we have romanticized in the West, this calling of missions as, oh, God has impressed this country on my heart. Therefore, I'll go and do that. Um, I don't believe that is, you know, how scripture talks about it. And so that's how I frame it. That's how I talk about it. And I believe this approach marries discipleship with mission the way it should be. I think this is a holistic approach rather than separating the mm-hmm. two. Yeah, it, it is to to have a conversation about missions. You have to talk about colonialism, white supremacy, um, or some of the like white saviorism, the centering that happens mm-hmm. that you were mentioning on the the goer. Um, so I yeah. think it's so yeah. But then with your approach to really hone in on the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit, the equipping and all those things of the Spirit. And you're right, like in all of my church, uh, you know, how old am I? 31. <laughs> so like mm-hmm. all the time, you know, this just you know kind of shying away from the Holy Spirit even though at one of the churches I went to, we went through the book of Acts, you know, but Mm -hmm. there wasn't a lot of on the other side of that implementing what we learned and really relying on the power of the spirit. And then um, I also, yeah, like you bring up persecution. And then I think of the privilege, another word that that you brought up that we can't Mm -hmm. not talk about for, for Western white missionaries. And it's like, you know, the, I don't know what it like. Okay. So I have conversations with some friends of mine, like Ruth, Christine Mm -hmm. and Danielle have to shout them out. But this idea Mm -hmm. of white Christians want to be persecuted so bad. So they say that this, you know, having to wear a mask during COVID is persecution and all these things. It's like that it's not even the same, like what a slap in the face. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. So, so for yeah. anyone listening, we are not being persecuted for having to wear a mask, uh, <laughs> but yeah. But you know, I, I, 
to your point of wanting to be persecuted, I think that's very valid because I, I think there's a sense of loss white Christians feel because um, they are protected from, from um, persecution. But, and this is why like a white, per, a white Christian has to be anti-racist is because the structure of white supremacy has provided you an oasis on earth. And I'm not saying like sickness doesn't, you know, hurt you or family breakups or whatever, but you are to an extent immune to, uh, you know, to certain, certain levels of um, injustice that other people of color experience. And so as a believer, if you truly want to experience what uh you know counting the cost of following jesus means you have to become actively anti-racist dismantling yeah. the power structure that makes you blind to mm -hmm. the whole beauty majesty power of god because when you look at scripture you know i mean god's people were slaves you know they were uh persecuted and so there, there is, because they, they were not protected by this, you know, su supreme power that for centuries institutionalized whiteness as the, you know, the, the norm. And so I think I, like, I hear that when people say, I mean, I've had friends say to me, and I used to think it was bizarre, but I hear it more and more now in college a friend of mine used to say like she just envied the prayer life that I had and she would say I wish I wish I would experience like hurt like you or persecution like for me at that time was being alone homesick you know from family and all of that and that just drew me closer to the Lord and there was something she noticed where she was like I, I just don't desire him like that I wish there was something in my life that made me desire him like that and and she was like I know this is weird to say so I I think that's valid and I think that's for you know the white Christian community really needs to work on what does yeah. that look like uh, but one of them is really I think the work of anti-racism yeah thank you for going there I know that was not a planned question but no, that's okay. just something <laughs> that uh that just struck me as you were talking yeah no that's good yeah okay so kind of getting to, you said November will mark, um, a year, like this November would yeah. be a year since starting just missions. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about just missions and why you started it, what you're hoping to do within the yeah. organization? Sure. I actually have to give a shout out to one of my friends, Gina Thomas, who started a just missions conversation, like a hashtag conversation on Twitter three or four years ago. And she invited me as a, you know, just a guest to sometimes process some ideas. And I would say she's one of those people that kind of pulled me out of my hiding place and said, like, we want to hear your voice. And so mm -hmm. she started that hashtag and that kind of died down for a little bit. And so when the Lord brought this idea of, you know, writing this book and um, pursuing this work, the only name that I go, I went back to was just missions. 
And so I had a conversation with her where I was like, is it okay if I take it on? So I just want to make sure, you know, credit is due uh, to her. But um, yeah, I started it because of the lack of voices that are heard from diaspora leaders in this space. I have initially, you know, when I wanted to do missions work, I looked at applying to jobs, you know, at big missions organizations or, you know, even starting an organization and all the context did not fit me. The lingo just rubbed me the wrong way. I look at, you know, the leadership and I knew that it was just not going to fit because they are coming to my context and trying to lead and it's like, no, you know, the, the, the people need to lead. They need to have a voice. Our, our theology needs to be heard. Our culture needs to be uh, honored. And so I started it as a Facebook group to give space for, you know, that for our leaders to say, no, this is the problem that I'm seeing. And I'm really excited to see the communities growing and, you know, I'm inviting more and more diaspora leaders to share their expertise, which has been really cool. But what has come out of that is organizational leaders, especially, you know, millennials um, are coming and saying, hey, so how can I change my approach? Or what can we do in our organization? And so I did a, a little research. And one thing that was coming over and over again from, um, you know, Western millennial leaders or those who have a heart for justice, but they don't really know like if they should go, you know, cause they're like, I know we've been doing a lot of harm. I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to perpetuate the issue was um, they keep saying we want mutuality cause that's been presented as mutual leadership is what's gonna solve the problem. Well, the problem is unless you really are self-aware of what your whiteness represents and you do your own hard work and then you go the extra step to um, hand over power, like trust is going to take a lot of time to build because it's already been built. You know, your ancestors <laughs> have done, they set the backdrop for how missions is done. And so to go the opposite direction means that I needed to start coaching and working with leaders on a different approach. So that's actually what I'm doing as I left, you know, my job to write um, the book to foster the Just Missions community on Facebook and have diaspora voices heard. I'm also really passionate about organizational leadership. I do not believe that everybody just needs to come back home. I, I'm a firm believer in cross-cultural ministry because the Lord has just changed my life by serving him in a different context. But what that has done for me is show me how small I am, you know, not the other way around. I want that for, you know, Western leaders. I want them to really truly experience God's majesty and be able to just be one voice at the table and not be like the loudest. And so I think that the term you referred to when I was talking to Sharon was unmute the mic. Like yes. it's not that that for leaders don't have a voice. It's just been intentionally muted. Mm -hmm. um, and I can tell you stories of how 
uh, for days. And so I really want to coach one-on-one, you know, leaders and challenge them to identify problematic practices, areas in their organization that they can start, you know, mending uh, by working with local leaders. And it's going to take time. So I only, you know, take clients that I feel like are ready to take that kind of step. Um, and, you know, if you don't believe systemic racism exists, then you're probably not the best person yeah. to work with me, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing now. Call me a broken record. Go ahead and roll your eyes. It's gonna take a lifetime of faith to uproot these age-old lies. Call me a broken record. It should be no surprise Long as my people lesser than equal Every day I rise Lift our voices With a freedom song Cry for justice With a mighty drum Pour our love On our enemies We will fight this evil With poetry So you brought up the word mutuality And so I'm really Mm -hmm. curious, like, what does mutuality look like in these spaces then? And how does your work cultivate that mutuality? Yeah, so mutuality at the end of the day is being brothers and sisters, you know, in Christ, right? And having one vision, which is to spread the gospel Mm -hmm. together. Um, that is not a concept that I think as a global church that we are really good at doing, mainly for me because I'm living in the States. And then when I go into my context, again, I see not just whiteness in terms of the culture of dominance and, you know, the history of oppression, but also just the financial power, you know, and uh, dynamics there is that it's really hard to break through. And so, and then, um, and then the training is also from, it's cross-cultural training done from a Western perspective. Mm, So it's basically, you know, if a white person was teaching you how to be an anti-racist and they were the ones who put that together, asking like interviewing black people, how how do you feel? It's such a watered down version Mm. rather than, and I'm not saying they shouldn't. I think everybody should do good work. But when you have access to the people themselves, I think you should, you know, do that. And so um, I think mutuality can only come when people are respected for leading in Mm. their own space, at their own pace, in their own cultural context. A lot of the times, you know, we go in, and I say we because I do identify with the Western church, like, you know, I've lived in it for so long. Um, you know, when we go from the West, and I am guilty of that too, is we go with our idea of what the problem is and what the solution is. Um, and we say, but we want mutuality. We want you to lead. And it's like, people can't lead in, in something they haven't created. Like, you have mm-hmm. to be a creator to be able to own it. Otherwise, you're just an employee running a program. And mm-hmm. so... Um, the, the other part of mutuality, and I've done this research, I ask leaders, I say, if you really could do mutuality, what would be the, the difficult thing? And they say, 
our donors would leave us, you know? And so that's another part. So if we really work towards mutuality, then our approach from being a donor-based organization needs to change. So that's one of the things we address is, are you really, this going to cost you people that, that are used to buying their way into power, um, making themselves feel good about their philanthropic efforts, because now they are doing this and that all around the world. Um, well, that might not be the approach, but I'm hopeful because the young Dafra community is entrepreneurial, you know, just dynamic. So for me, it's actually super exciting to see, um, you know, I'm like, okay, I don't need your money. So intentionally, Just Missions is not a like a fundraising organization. Mm -hmm. You know, I believe in doing business models in the future that we might create something that is, you know, nonprofit, but if so, it is only to sponsor like scholarships so that that for leaders get trainings that they need, but not so that we can, you know, like I just don't believe in the fundraising model. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, God has given us uh, abilities and Uh, people can use their entrepreneurial skills. The, the more we stay away from making ministry our vocation, I think the better mm -hmm. it is for our spiritual lives. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of, so I would say mutuality is going to look different in every context, but most of it, I think to reach to mutuality, what I get to is the heart of, are you willing to mm -hmm. um, pay the price of mutuality mm -hmm. I think it can be achieved but there's a lot that needs to be let go to get there yeah I love that that like if we're seeing one another as siblings and particularly those who are the privileged um and and equalize that uh, and rather than having a hierarchy based in the donations and the money yep. that then gives some you know ownership from the privileged mm -hmm. from the donors to be able yeah. to eliminate that really, yeah, just like equalizes the interactions and yeah. is so important. Um, yeah. So, okay. You've also mentioned already that you have a book coming out with InterVarsity yeah. Press. Um, so I would love for you to share about this project, the content of the book, like when you're expecting it to release and where yeah. people could pre-order as well. Yeah, so um, I'm writing it right now. I just announced that I signed, you know, the the deal in February. So my deadline is in depth, um July. Okay. And so, you know, I think after that, it takes about a year for it to come up. They have their own process. So summer of 2022 is when it's expected to come out. And I'm just so excited about it. It's, it's really... Um, in depth what we just talked about and okay. more I write a lot of my personal um journey of awakening to all of these you know learnings that I came upon um and so there are lots of stories um but also just uh, a lot of you know resources that people need to look at and um I make a suggestion that in terms of reframing our missions there are different lenses that we need to look at um one of the things I mean I I talked about justice you know briefly but I also challenge like what you are doing at home impacts like mm -hmm. if your witness is worthy enough to be spread around the world and so I think it puts a lot of emphasis on our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord um, and 
as a believer, like our definition, I think in the Western context is like this, you know, just go to church on Sundays and give to the church and then go on mission trip once a year. And this like compartmentalized type of faith is not what, you know, what a just mission um, oriented believer is speaking. And so I'm really excited about it. It's been such a worshipful experience for me. You know, I just really love like um, being able to share this with others. And I just pray as it gets in people's hands that it really transforms, you know, their perspective. So I'm excited about it. Yeah, I'm excited to read it. Like it's Thank just <laughs> yeah, to go deeper into yeah, this conversation mm-hmm. and have have more of that. Well, where can people find you online? Like your, your website, I'll put that in the show notes and then I want to talk sure. about um the newsletter that they'll get if they go to your website, but as well as your social media yes. uh handles and stuff. Yeah. So all my social media is com, which is my website and then um IG and Twitter is all Mikdash Hadith and so um yeah you can find me there um I am not the best at tweeting stuff but I do post stuff on IG and then I would really encourage people to join the Facebook group that's probably where I'm the most active about this work is in the Facebook group mm-hmm. um so I would love for people you know to to come to Facebook I guess is it dot group slash just missions but yeah it's a facebook group uh called just missions and we would love to have you there ask questions and kind of foster this perspective of reframing mission yes yeah i'll put all that in the show notes and on the facebook group yeah that's where i watched the video with sharon and i have other ones i want to go back and watch Mm -hmm. uh, with your guests that you've had on um who thank you our leaders and voices within yes. this, this conversation. So, yeah. So I signed up for the newsletter and then I got to download five questions to ask yourself before going on a mission trip. And I wish mm-hmm. that I'd had this before I went on short-term mission trips. Wow. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, like it just, it would have radically, I, mean, I maybe wouldn't have even ended up going because mm. starting to understand, right. The, I went on these two short-term trips that probably, mm-hmm did more, more damage than good. And definitely I, like, I don't want to come to this conversation acting like I've always believed like yeah. the things you're saying, yeah. but instead, like I, I did believe and perpetuate the, um, this other narrative, the detrimental mm-hmm. narrative within missions and it definitely came back more focused on what it did for me. Yeah. So I wish I had had, um, these five questions to ask. So in that document, you wrote about how when you meet with international pastors, theologians, and missionaries, you ask them their thoughts on the, quote, theological famine talked about by Western Christians and the need for missionaries. And so you've you've hit on this already, but I want to dive a little bit deeper in the time we have sure. left to, to just hear you talk about this theological famine, and that's in quotation marks, and the fallacies mm-hmm. in the ways that it is framed by Western Christians. Yeah, so that was actually, whew, the theological famine was a term once I heard it was, and it's typically directed towards Africa. Um, so that hits a nerve for me because, again, you know, there's the stereotype of Africa and poverty, and this is a spiritualizing, basically, the, the biases, you know, and calling it um, a theological famine. And so, 
other than it being offensive, it is also misleading. Um, one of my favorite um, theologians, an Ethiopian theologian, a friend of mine, his name is Abenezer Orga, and he's written several books actually on Amazon. Um, he self-publishes them because, you know, he's awesome like that. But he, um, I had this conversation with him and I thought his response was beautiful. He said, they just don't understand because they don't speak our language, that our, our theology is embedded in everything we do. And he was, we just had this conversation last week and he was saying how our, our gospel singers are our theologians, you know, they, the way we worship God through music, that's how theology is transmitted because especially in Africa, we're an oral culture. And so um, even when you look at the Orthodox Church, you wake up in the morning and you hear the priest mm-hmm. saying his, the morning prayer and you just hear it like all around the town. And then you say your prayers with him. People are used to going to church every morning to do their morning prayer and recite. You know, we used to call it, uh, well, they still call it, I guess, Dawit, which is the Psalms, you know, so they know how to recite the Psalms in the morning. And so theology is actually embedded in everything we do. Um, and I'm, again, I'm talking from Ethiopia. When you say good morning to someone, they don't respond by saying good morning. They respond by saying, uh, um, may honor be to God. You know, that's how you respond. So theology is everywhere. But for the Western mind, you need to understand our language to get that. And that takes forever, right? <laughs> Most missionaries go and spend two years or so to learn the language. But for me, I always say language is in your capacity to understand jokes. Like if you can understand the joke of the culture, then you got it. And typically that does not happen until you've been there for like 10 to 20 years. That's when you can really criticize and say, oh, there's theological famine. And by that time, you're probably transformed by what the Lord is doing in that community. That type of language is not one that you would project. And so it's just um, very surfacey. Again, it's it's tailored towards the Western ear that is uh, used to hearing you are a savior. So we need to mm-hmm. continue emphasizing this white savior um, ideology. So we keep coming up with terms like that to put down one work of God on the other side of the continent and then mm-hmm. glorify one side of God's work in another part of the continent. So um, yeah, I think that that just is not received well. And I hope people don't use it. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you so much for that. And to just think of the humility it takes for someone to Mm -hmm. be able to look into another culture and see the ways that God is at work and see the ways, like you said, Mm -hmm. like we all know our creator who has manifested themselves through through everything we see, like creation sings the praises Mm -hmm. of God. So yes, um, I love that. So um, within the document, the first question, I want to talk about two of them that that really stuck out to me. Um, and I don't want to give all five questions away because I want people to sign up and download <laughs> yeah, the document. Yes. But I love 
<laughs> so I love the first question is just asking, why are you going? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, why is that a necessary question to ask? Yeah, I think it's very important because again, there are some beliefs that we don't even question, you know, as believers. Again, I went to school with, um, you know, believers who were taught, you know, a certain way. And so that's always what they did. And a lot of them just think this is the right thing to do. Like as a Christian, you should go on mission trips for your spring break break, rather than going to Florida. Like that's a Christian thing to do. Um, And it it comes from a good place, you know, good intentions. That's what they were taught to do. Um, And it happens, but that's not the right reason to go. The other one is some believe they're called. And again, I challenge that because there's a part of us, I think, that idolizes going um, because of, again, this idea of the white savior. And so we're like, I must go. This is my calling. I have so much to give. Therefore, I should go and share it with others. Um, and then something, think that they are, um, they want to experience something. Like I mentioned earlier, especially parents want their kids to be exposed to missions, um, you know, experiences. Actually, the, I don't know if you've seen the Barna research that recently came out about the future of missions. One of their findings was that parents are paranoid now that, you know, their kids are saying they don't want to go on a mission trip because, you know, that, that the, those that have been exposed to short-term missions are in the long term, the ones that end up being long-term missionaries. And so it's kind of, oh, if you go and see, then you want to become one, um, and so they're kind of nervous that that system is breaking down because this is the way to kind of uh, groom future missionaries. And so I just think all of that is wrong. <laughs> you know, Jesus calls us to make disciples wherever you are. And so if you are a disciple maker and your journey of pursuing Jesus leads you to going somewhere, fine, be it. Um, I'm also like, if you have money and you want to invest it, that's great. I think you shouldn't go to um, vulnerable communities and kind of um, prey on them. You know, I don't know what the, it's just so wrong. So I feel like there are some people that have money with great intentions that say, you know, I have money, I want to build a church. I think that's great. But the way uh, short missions is designed is to expose you to the worst condition of a people group and anywhere else in the world you go you first see all the good stuff about a culture right like mm-hmm. if you're on vacation yeah. you go to all the museums you see all their leaders so I actually have lord willing once COVID disappears a trip designated to the, you know the people that I work with to take them to Ethiopia and just show them all of our history, the beauty and the leaders and the culture and the context so that they see it from my perspective. I'm an Ethiopian leader. This is how I want you to see my, my country so that you can respect my people. Unfortunately, you know, we're fallen. Therefore, our fallenness is embedded in every good act that we do. And so the way to combat that is we have to make sure that we're intentional about the, the, the stories we're telling ourselves, you know? 
And so I don't want any missionary, whoever aspires to be a missionary, to go to an orphanage and this and that before they got a chance to see, you know, how, what is good, you know, in the country, because you can't lead from a place of um, integrity unless you, you know, like in a way that is mutual and contextualized before you even honor what's, what's there in the land. Um, so, yeah. So anyways, um, I think that's a very important question people need to answer. Yeah. Yeah. To really dig into, right. The motivation for going. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I love your approach of counteracting all the uh, negative images. And mm-hmm. you even talked about like the power of images mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, as you were talking, I thought about Chimimanda Ngoze Adiche, yes. her Yes. Danger of a single story. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. if people haven't watched that, her TED talk, um, I can put that in the links, uh, show notes too, because I think that really hits at what you're saying to go and look at the beauty and exactly. that you know of your people and your yep. home and um, or like where you spent the first 19 years of your life and have this connection mm-hmm. to you. So to highlight the beauty. Yeah, we have that. that. We had that conversation with our um, dress missions group as well with her video because it's such a powerful um, tool. Yeah. Even yeah. she talked about her one story about Westerners too, right? Like if she had one story that we, we are not afforded that privilege because, you know, yeah. the West controls the narrative. So Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, could you speak to what you would say to someone if, as they are working through that first question and they come to the real, like their motivation and is that they could, that they could go and be changed because they've heard so many stories of you come back more grateful for what you had. Like, what would you say to that person who maybe is listening right now and thinking I need to go so that I can, I can be transformed. Mm Mm-hmm. I would say, please don't go if that's your, you know, if that is your motivation. Like I said, there is a lot of good that is done in cross-cultural context, but I feel like the change actually that you are desiring is right around the red line districts of your city. And so I would say start there. Um, And so whatever change you want in yourself, it needs to start from your Jerusalem. So identify the people that are the outcasts in your community, um, you know, who are the people that are crying out for justice to be served in their communities, who are the people that need to see um, Jesus' face, you know, through you, and don't just interact with them through an organized trip because of, you know, what your church does every quarter truly like make that a part of your life make different types of people a part of your dinner table conversation you know have friends from different cultures and backgrounds um and work at that and i i really believe that is what should lead you to the next step of you know judea samaria and to the end of the earth and honestly as americans that that is everywhere if if anywhere in the world America is set up in a way where um, the whole world is all around us. And so, you know, I think that's something that is easily accessible. And then if you do need to go to a different country, benefit the tourism 
um, organization, just go as a tourist, learn their culture, and, you know, better the economy that way, like support the government, rather than, you know, like supporting these institutions that on the side are doing things that are disruptive. And so, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. Um, Yeah, and the fourth question in that document you want people to ask is, is the organization you're going with led by local pastors and leaders? And you wrote, ask them the makeup of their board, executive Mm -hmm. team, and senior leadership team. So why is it important for the organization to be led by local pastors and leaders? Yeah, I think it's important, first of all, because it's biblical. If you look at scripture and like amazing leaders like Moses or Nehemiah or Daniel, like these are all people that are, have been either exiled or, um, you know, taken from their land. They were immigrants or whatever, but they led their their people out of horrible things, you know? Um, And so it's just biblical that local leaders need to lead their communities. Um, and it's also going to be, if you look at Nehemiah and the way that he led, it was so strategic, it was so detailed, and that he knew uh, who to tap into for a specific job. So if you're a foreigner coming in, you're not going to know that. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's biblical, but it's also uh, leadership. You know, that's a, a great leader knows when to let others lead and um, actually leadership should be about empowering others. And so, mm. and then also I challenge the organization's, you know, makeup of executive directors and leaders, because for me, I've been, I know I'm connected to a lot of people and I know a lot of organizations that do work in Ethiopia, mm. um, but they don't have Ethiopians speaking into, you know, anything and so I think it goes back to the local at working as um you know injustice plays into that and mm-hmm. it's exported into the global and so um you know people say oh we don't have uh you know black and brown people that can serve in this capacity that's why we have all white people mm-hmm. that is wrong that is not true you know we are yeah. everywhere but we're probably a threat because we now, if you truly desire mutuality, you start with us, the ones that are actually mm. in your neighborhood, right? People, it's funny that they say, let's be mutual back home because they know to some extent they control the power. That's not true mutuality. It has to start mm. here at home because I, like, you're not feeding me anything, you know, like back home, they're scared to bite the hand that feeds them. But mm. here you have no power over me. So I can actually really teach you and help you and challenge you and hold you accountable as you do this thing. Um, And so if you practice mutuality here, then you're going to be better and successful. And so honestly, the reason even I created my coaching program is because we're not invited into these spaces to sit at the boards and, you know, Mm. so for those who want me, I have to create a way where I'm like, Hey, let me sit at your board, but you know, everybody else might not accept what I have to say, but at least as a leader, you can be 
uh, thinking through these strategies. You know, this is one way I can honor the voice God has given me um, is by creating a space where people like me can be heard, you know, and those that desire true mutuality can start practicing it. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. And I, I think you've talked about that. Maybe I read it somewhere too, the idea of being afraid to speak up in the mm-hmm. contexts when there is that power dynamic that mm-hmm. is literally, yeah, the hand that feeds. And so for you to have the freedom to step into that place and to yeah. speak what other people might be afraid to speak because of the backlash and even Sharon, like in her call with you, yeah. when she talked about the backlash she would face for speaking up yeah. and just, yeah. Mm-hmm. And saying what, what, what the powerful don't want to hear. Um, exactly. So, yeah. So yeah. yeah, well, in conclusion here with all of the backdrop that, that we've just gone through, what is your hope for missions? Yeah. I honestly, my hope for missions is that it becomes uh, decentralized, honestly, you know, that uh, Christians feel empowered to know that because of the power of the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. that is in them, they are fully equipped to share the gospel, be a witness wherever they are, and uh, be a pa- like a powerful force uh, to disrupt injustice, you know. And so I think if I if I can communicate that clearly, um, and just to <laughs> for believers to really understand that Jesus was not about institutions, you know, he was he always pushed back when people wanted to put him on a pedestal. He was not about privilege. He talked Mm -hmm. about how, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but he has no place to rest his head. When we have made missions about this building an empire of, Mm -hmm. you know, a legacy of uh, philanthropy, um, I call it like if we can transform this um, transactional legacy that the, Mm -hmm. the old missions movement has left to a relational legacy that Jesus mm. left with his disciples, mm. that would be the future of missions. And I hope that the Western church opens up her eyes to see mm. the many missionaries around her already from all mm. over the world and um, really challenges the ideology of you know, white supremacy to allow these voices of color to lead Mm -hmm. and challenge, you know, and practice mutuality here. Um, I feel like the Western church needs to first be a receiving church before Mm -hmm. um, continuing to send. And so I know that's a lot, but I have, you know, I, I, I pray that is at least the Lord uses me as a voice to awaken this consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, and, and believers who are saying, yeah, yeah, that, that's right. Like that resonates with my spirit, you know, this is truth. And so um, I hope, you know, people just start asking questions and um, forming their own missiology, you know, because I feel like missiology is something um, that is so academic that, mm-hmm. Um, you know, theology has 
become, I think, something that we now feel comfortable saying I'm a theologian, everybody can be a theologian. But I feel like missiology is so academic that people are afraid to kind of even go there. So I really hope this young generation, the next generation of Christian leaders can say, yeah, missiology is actually something that I need to wrestle with too. And I am a missiologist, you know, that it's something that they they can get a hold of. And so, yeah, that would be my hope for mission. A lot of things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Two things I took notes of powerful force to disrupt injustice and transactional to relational, just mm-hmm. such beautiful, beautiful things for us to embody in, yeah. yeah, in our lives. And as we engage in whatever that like, yeah, in, in the missiology and put that into practice in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. So Thank you so much for your time here and sharing about the work you're doing and just missions and reframing this missions. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and share. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad I got to meet you finally because Ruth had told me about you. So thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Oh, wow. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I haven't stopped thinking about this conversation with Megdes, and I am grateful for her time, wisdom, and expertise that she shared here. Please let me know your thoughts after you listen. Well, I wanted to read a review for the podcast and thank everyone who has rated and reviewed so far. So I'll read this review from Wella Danny B. They wrote, this podcast is a highlight in my feed. The host is full of warmth and compassion. I love how she holds space for people and their vulnerability. I've been introduced to many great people willing to share their experiences. I usually learn something that challenges me and spend the rest of the week contemplating it until the next episode. It's a fantastic listen. So thank you so much for your kind words. As a reminder, the music from today's episode was Broken Record, featuring Lucy by Micah Bornet and Jasmine Rodriguez, and the full song will close out the episode. You can stream, purchase, and download Micah's music at micahbornet.bandcamp.com. If you like what you heard today, share it with a friend. I really think that little by little, person by person, we can broaden the narrative. I also want to thank Jordan Lukens for his help with editing and Daniel Boland for creating the episode graphic. You can access the Broadening the Narrative blog and transcripts for episodes as they become available by visiting broadeningthenarrative.blogspot.com. Come back next week for a conversation you do not want to miss with Emily Joy Allison, author of the new book, Church 2, How Purity Culture Upholds Abuse and How to Find Healing. Grace and peace, friends. Call me a broken record. Go ahead and roll your eyes. It's gonna take a lifetime of faith to uproot these age-old lies. Call me a broken record, it should be no surprise Long as my people lesser than equal, every day I rise Lift our voices, with a freedom song Cry for justice, with a mighty drum Pour our love on our enemies We will fight this evil with poetry your hope don't put your hope don't put your hope in a man don't lose your hope don't lose your hope don't lose your hope to a president
This is more than one Goliath needing to be slain. Don't look for a hero king to rescue us from pain. We need a whole symphony, an honest marching band. To play a truthful melody in this deceptive land Lift our voices with a freedom song Cry for justice with a mighty drum Pour our love on our enemies We will fight this evil with poetry Call me a broken record, go ahead and roll your it's gonna take a lifetime of faith to uproot these age-old lies Call me a broken record, it should be no surprise Long as my people lesser than equal every day I rise Lift our voices, Lift our voices with a freedom song Cry for justice with a mighty drum Pour our love on our enemies We will fight Lift our voices with a freedom song Cry for justice with a mighty drum Pour our love on our enemies We will fight this evil with poetry Lift our voices with a freedom song Cry for justice with a mighty drum Pour our love on our enemies We will fight this evil with poetry